0: Good morning. Today is called the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. That's a designation that uh, President Ronald Reagan gave back in 1984 and has been a yearly reminder of the sanctity of human life during those, uh, these last almost 40 years. It is... I think an important day, it's also a very controversial day, and it can even be somewhat of a sad day for lots of different reasons. It's a day that reminds me of a quote I read a couple of years ago, and I want to read it in its full context. It says, the unborn are a convenient group of people to advocate for. They never make demands of you. They are morally uncomplicated, unlike the incarcerated, addicted, or the chronically poor. They don't resent your condescension or complain that you are not politically correct. Unlike widows, they don't ask you to question patriarchy. Unlike orphans, they don't need money, education, or childcare. Unlike aliens, they don't bring all that racial, cultural, and religious baggage that you dislike. The unborn allow you to feel good about yourself without any work at creating or maintaining relationships. And when they are born, you can forget about them because they cease to be unborn. It's almost as if by being born, they have died to you. You can love the unborn and advocate for them without substantially challenging your own wealth, power, or privilege, without reimagining social structures, apologizing, or making reparations to anyone. They are, in short, the perfect people to love if you want to claim you love Jesus, but actually dislike people who breathe. Prisoners, immigrants, the sick, the poor, widows, orphans, all the groups that are specifically mentioned in the Bible, they all get thrown under the bus for the unborn. Wow. How does that strike you? Now, before you start seething with anger or ready to walk out, stick with me this morning. Okay, I'm going to ask you to stick with me all the way through, all right? We're going to tread some extremely difficult territory this morning. In fact, you know, if you've got kids in the room and you'd prefer them not to wrestle with these kinds of things, we have a kid's ministry down the hall. I'm sure they'd be happy to have you this morning. And I already recognize already that I am a middle-aged man talking about these things, which makes me less than the ideal person and someone who lacks understanding, I'm sure. But stick with me. This conversation is necessary, even for a quote like this. Let me credit the author. David Barnhart wrote this on social media several years ago. David Barnhart, you might be surprised to know, is a pastor. He's a Methodist pastor. And he's wrong. I mean, how can he not be wrong when we have come together in this place to worship a Lord who, as a baby, was nearly killed by a king? Herod slaughtered the innocent babies in Bethlehem for political convenience, and our scriptures don't look too highly on that. I think David Barnhart is wrong. Plus, he makes some very ungracious assumptions about all of you. I've met lots of you who claim to love Jesus and who also actually like people who breathe. In fact, I don't know that I've ever come across a pro-life person in my experience who dislikes orphans or widows or the poor. Just the opposite. I've seen the, the compassion people have for the unborn pour over into compassion for other people. And David claims that the unborn are convenient to advocate for because they never make demands of us. But boy, advocating for the unborn is complex and challenging. This is a child that is residing inside of their mother and there are so many debates and and discussions about this this person's rights and this person's rights and there are uh, religious implications, there are uh, medical implications of decisions like this, there are a myriad of emotions and political perspectives for carrying a child to term or not. This is hardly easy, none of it's convenient. I suppose what's convenient is to ignore the unborn because, I mean, they're silent. They're not going to reach out to you for help. They're not going to pester you on a street corner for help. If you looked away from them, you don't have to ever be troubled by them. David's wrong. And I think it's because he's forgetting about dust Uh, This month we've been in a series highlighting the presence uh, that God gives us that we often overlook in our everyday lives, uh, including his very own presence in our life, and we've been looking at stories of goodness together, and we want to continue that through this year. God's goodness and love, Psalm 23 says, follow us all the days of our lives, and one of the beautiful examples of God's goodness, I think, is dust. You may not think so. Because anytime we think of dust, and you notice it laying on your bedside table, you know, or your hardwood floor, what is it that you want to do? You want to get rid of it. So we vacuum, and we dust, and we swiffer, and we sweep, and we do all the things. Just get rid of it. Besides, you know, after all, dust is a, a kind of reminder about decay and about death. I mean, we don't want to think about this, but the cloud of particles that we so see so beautifully dancing in the sunlight our little you know, dust mites and dead skin cells and hairs. Gross, right? We'd rather just not think about it, or death at all, it's not very convenient. But the second creation story in the book of Genesis, found in Genesis 2, points out something extremely valuable about dust, especially, I think, on this Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Because in Genesis 2, starting in verse 4, it reminds us that our creation was an intentional act. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, the author writes, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens... Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. And then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The Lord God formed a man from the dust. God formed us. There were lots of Hebrew words that they could have been used to describe that process. They could have used the word, uh, we translate to create. Bara could use the word to make, asah, but the word chosen here is the word yatsar, which is a word in Hebrew that uh, focuses on the object that is being shaped. It is used throughout the Old Testament to describe a potter who takes a vessel of clay and, and shapes the clay into something intentionally. It signifies this act of creation was by design. God fashioned human beings intentionally. That was his deliberate creation. This was not an accidental one. And that same metaphor is used throughout the Old Testament. Job, as he spoke with God, said this. He said, your hands shaped me and made me. Will you now turn and destroy me? Remember that you molded me like clay. Will you now turn me to dust again? Do you hear the words? Shaped and molded and made. It's intentional. Or David would say it as well in Psalm 139. For you, God, created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. God's act of intentionally creating humanity is seen all throughout. That is not the cultural story that is blaring from our news stations and our social media sites, is it? No, no. Humans, we hear, came about by the random accident of a chaotic cosmos were slapped together strands of dna accidental creatures in an evolutionary world and i'm afraid that our worth has shrunk to the size of our convenience i looked at the uh, planned parenthood website and they list a number of reasons to guide a woman or a couple in making a decision to abort a child I won't read them all, and again, there are so many reasons and thoughts that go into something like this. You, you can read them all if you'd like and decide um, if or which are valid in your mind. But I can, I can only imagine the the incredible anguish of making such a decision. And, and yet, some of the reasons listed there just struck me. They just struck me. Here's here's some of them. They're not ready to be a parent yet. Or it's not a good time in their life to have a baby. Or they they want to finish school or focus on work or achieve other goals before having a baby. Or they just don't want to be a parent. Now again, I can only imagine the excruciating challenge it must be of choosing to keep or abort an unborn child. It is a devastating life and death decision. And the choice to abort is one that about one in four uh, women in the United States will make by the time they're 45 years old. And if that's you this morning, if that's someone that you love, listen, you you are welcome here. You are accepted here. You are loved here. God's grace meets us all where we are with whatever we struggle with. There's so many thoughts that go into this, but when I hear some of those reasons from that list, it seems to come down to one word in my mind, inconvenience. The scriptures paint the picture of humans as intentional creation, but some, some in our culture have made the decision to abort a child as if humans were not an intentional creation, but an inconvenient situation. That seems to be the starting place of the 2019 movie called The The Peanut Butter Falcon. Did you see that one? It kind of reminded me of uh, Huck Finn on the Mississippi River. You know, it tells a story about a kind of a down-and-out orphan named Tyler, played by Shia LaBeouf, and um, this other guy named Zach, played by Zach Gottsigan himself. Zach is a 22-year-old uh, with Down syndrome, and he is escaping from kind of a state-run facility. And he hides himself in Tyler's boat as Tyler is kind of running away from his own mess that he's making in life. And at first, Zach is treated like an absolute inconvenience in Tyler's life. But as they make a run for it down the river away from the authorities, things begin to change. Now, I always feel like I need to tell you there's questionable language and there's rough edges all around the movie, okay? But it does tell an incredible story. It does a great job, I think, of calling into question our cultural assumptions about uh, people with Down syndrome or even children who are unwanted like Shia's character. The movie kind of digs into their characters' aspirations and their dreams and and seeing those things come to fulfillment. They, They struggle through plenty, but they also succeed and find love and even create a family. There's life in this story. And that life even poured out from the screen into reality. You see, Shia and Zach presented an award at the 2020 Oscars, and Zach was the first person with Down syndrome to ever have that honor. He entered the room in Hollywood to a standing ovation. And just tell me, you know, if he doesn't steal the scene here in this video. Short films allow for new voices to be seen and heard without the constraints of budget or permission. I've seen these films and they are beautiful. And if you haven't seen it, come see it. Bang. Here here are the nominees for best live action short film. So I'm glad that Zach is alive. And again, it's easy for me to say that. It's another thing to help. You know, during the 1980s, when screening for Down syndrome became more common among pregnant women, most babies with Down syndrome have been quietly aborted, sort of out of public view. In fact, the statistics are not reliable, but by a lot of estimates, they say America aborts about 67% of babies with Down syndrome. Uh, France is about 77%. Denmark, 98%. Iceland is nearly 100%. One Icelandic doctor recently said, we have basically eradicated almost Down syndrome from our society. By eradicated, he means we have removed life from these babies. He called it genetic counseling, but as I read what he was saying, it it just kept coming back to me. It sounded like inconvenience. That's essentially what a pro-choice British journalist by the name of Antonia Senior concluded in her article for the Times. She uh, went through her own pregnancy and uh, had a child, and she wrote of that experience. She said, my daughter was formed at conception. Remember, she's pro-choice. Any other conclusion is a convenient lie that we on the pro-choice side of the debate tell ourselves to make us feel better about the action of taking a life. And here's her conclusion. Yes, abortion is killing, but it's the lesser evil. these are not easy things to talk about. Like dust, I think we just as soon sweep it under the rug and not have to deal with it, pretend it doesn't exist, eliminate the inconvenience of it. I get that. (laughs) But like dust, we also need to remember God's creative, intentional formation with dust to make you and everyone you've ever loved. And I think that's worth fighting for. The unborn David said, or a convenient group of people to advocate for, they never make demands of you. No, David, he's wrong. Just ask the Hebrew midwives in Exodus chapter 1 who defied the orders of Pharaoh, put their lives at risk in order to deliver Hebrew babies when he said to kill them. They put their lives on the line because they dared believe in dust that God intentionally formed this baby and this baby and this baby and for them, any, convenient, any inconvenience was necessary to hold up the creation of human life. David's wrong. Pastor David Barnhart's wrong. But the bigger problem is he's right. He said, You can love the unborn and advocate for them without substantially challenging your own wealth, power, or privilege. Rallying for the unborn can be a convenient excuse to avoid the already born but struggling people. The unborn won't ask you to help with their electricity bill this month. Or they won't force you to wrestle with whether you're helping someone or enabling them or trying to lift up a person with ingrained generational cycles of poverty so that they're begging you for rent money with one hand and in the other hand they have a thousand dollar cell phone and a cigarette dangling between their fingers. What do you do with that? How do you help? It's tough, it's big, it's difficult, it's uncomfortable, it's, it's inconvenient. David Barnhart is right because he remembered something about dust that I often forget that, uh, that Hannah sang in 1 Samuel 2 about our God who raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. Because you see, dust also reminds us that every person around you, everybody you know was created intimately by our God. Genesis 2, 7, the Lord God formed a man, think of this picture, from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Do you hear how close this God gets when he creates humanity? The picture is he formed humans from the dirt. Our God gets his fingernails dirty. God the gardener puts his hands in the dirt to create humanity. He's quite willing to come so close, no matter the mess, to to be with you. God is not afraid to get his hands dirty, to encounter inconvenience, to build someone up, or listen, to rebuild someone, even you, even me, no matter our sin. Now, in some creation stories of other ancient cultures like Egyptian or Akkadian, they had a different picture where the gods created humanity out of clay And you can kind of understand that picture. You know, I think a lot of us, with enough practice, we could make something that looked like a human out of soft clay with, you know, enough time. But you can never do that with dust. I mean, the most beautiful thing I could create out of dust would be a pile, you know? And even that would blow away with the next strong breeze. So, so just imagine the, the sort of painstaking detail and close proximity of a God who's taking bits of dust and putting it together to make a person. He's so intimate in this forming that his breath gets involved. You heard it. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. I mean, how could you avoid it if you're this close? And yet, how intimate is that? Think about that in your own life. Who in your life is close enough to you that you would share their breath in your nostrils? Now you're really uncomfortable. Gross. Nobody. Maybe, you know, as a kid, your, your parents, or your caregivers, you know, giving you those butterfly bedtime kisses, you know, you're sharing breath with each other. Or maybe you've got kids of your own or grandkids and you take a nap on the couch and they're laying on your chest and their head is right there. And breath to breath, maybe your spouse, you share breath with your spouse, usually in the morning when you wish they were not breathing in your direction. Maybe it's your own elderly parents these days that you're you're serving them, you're leaning over to help them face-to-face, breath-to-breath. I mean, is there an image that's any more intimate than that? God breathes His breath, His life into us. We share His breath. And so does every person that you ever meet. Every last one. The CEO and the unemployed. The Panther Creek homeowner and the homeless, the athlete, and the handicapped, the, the the Harvard grad, the uneducated, the powerball winner, and the poor, people of color, an old white man like me, liberals and conservatives, St. Louis Cardinal fans and St. Louis Cardinal fans. All right, Chicago White Sox fans too. I got that's fine. We're all dust breathed in by the high and holy God. And so, listen, our care, our advocacy, our action must also focus on the living, breathing people all around us the sick and incarcerated and poor and powerless and lonely and isolated. Let me describe them to you as ruthlessly honest as I know how. The people who you might feel are an inconvenience. Listen to how the scriptures talk about them Proverbs 14. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. And he who is generous to the needy honors him. How we treat the people God intimately made is how we treat our God. Or Isaiah, when the poor and needy seek water and there is none and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. God cares for those He intimately made. So should we. Or this long passage In Matthew 25, always is chilling for me, Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate uh, people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left and the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world, for I was hungry you gave me something to eat I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink I was a stranger, you invited me in I needed clothes, you clothed me, I was sick you looked after me, I was in prison and you came to visit me and the righteous will answer him, Lord when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When do we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Dust is easy to overlook and it is so inconvenient. (laughs) But maybe it's one of God's good gifts to us. Maybe it reminds us of God's intentional and intimate formation of each of us, even the least of us. The least of us like the unborn? Sure, yes, a million times yes, but also every single life. The mother in distress, the absent father, the abortion doctor, and nurses in the clinics the crushed grandparents the disrespectful kid in a hoodie walking through your neighborhood at 11 o'clock at night the strung out meth head with yellowed rotting teeth who looks at you and laughs that you believe in some fairy god in the sky named Jesus even an old white male preacher discussing abortion every life the loud and profane the livid and crude what are you going to do with all this dust in your life? You're going to sweep it under the rug or are you going to do something that's inconvenient will you this week do one thing that will promote life maybe for you that means praying at an abortion clinic or volunteering at the First Step Women's Center to help women in need that's good maybe for you that means mentoring a young man at the outlet or reading for a child at Black Hawk Elementary School that's good too Maybe that means for you going to a nursing home and caring for a resident there, going to a prison and visiting someone there, that's really good. In fact, isn't that what God said when he focused on the dust? God saw all that he had made and it was very good. You know, maybe I should thank Pastor David Barnhart for reminding us of all of this with his ridiculous and overstated and yet also true social media post. In fact, I may have to dust that one off again sometime. (laughs) What do you think? Father, it blows us away that from the most rudimentary elements, you brought us together and you pulled us into this place and you filled us with your breath and your spirit and it's all beyond what we deserve. Will you help us to be a people who promote that life? A people consistently, Lord God, look for ways to be gracious, look for ways to see your spirit at work, and to live abundantly, passing on your blessing to those around us, whatever their circumstance. We pray for the strength to do that today, and all this week, in Jesus' name, amen.